<clears throat> well, okay, so I'm preaching on Genesis 17. Somebody do me the kindness of reading the top of your chapter. What's the heading say at the top of your chapter? Circumcision. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah, Chris has this uh, annoying habit of assigning me passages of Scripture. Look at him laugh. He's, he can't even control himself. He might have just peed a little bit. He's laughing so hard. He thinks it's so funny to give me passages that essentially is going to embarrass myself. Well done. It's going to happen again today. So uh, we're going to break into this, and I'm not going to lie to you. This was a tough week. I'll tell you this much. I learned more about circumcision than any person should ever know in the history of humanity. Um, so we're going to work through this, this chapter, and I want to basically break it down for you. There's really what I would call five movements. Um, we're actually only going to look verses 1 through 14. There's like five movements that we're going to look at. Um, and then I want to try to draw a, <clears throat> excuse me, an application or a link from what we're studying to how does that apply to us today in 2019. And so let's read the passage. And then we'll, uh, we'll break into this. Uh, so chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram... Oh, actually, let me start with this first. By the way, this is the name change chapter. And so I may be going like back in the past. I'm just going to call him Abraham and Sarah. Okay? So, so I don't have to confuse myself and based on who I was talking about at what time period of history. So we're just going to go with Abraham and Sarah. Even when it says Abram there, I'm still going to read Abraham. Okay? So just stick with me on that. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. <clears throat> Excuse me, walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you, multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram. I'll read it there. But your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout this generation uh, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you... You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. <clears throat> All right, let's, uh, let's do a little history review real quick. So this passage says uh, Abraham is 99 years old at this time, okay? Oh, thank you. I don't know if it's going to help because I'm sick, but I appreciate it. The gesture is kind. If we, go back to Abra uh, if we go back to Genesis 12, you don't have to flip there, but if we go back to Genesis 12, we see that's when God called Abraham originally. He was 75 years old. So from that time to this time, 24 years has passed. 
okay? 24 years. Before that, uh, chapter 16, we see that Abraham and Sarah decided to try to help God out, okay? And at that point, Abraham was around 85 years old. So he had left Haran. He'd been gone from Haran for 10 years. And uh, Abraham and Sarah were getting kind of itchy to see if God was actually going to come through with his promise. So they took matters into their own hands. And so at 85 years old, Sarah had an awesome idea. Abraham agreed to it. Uh, to offer up a maidservant and so that they could continue their bloodline through her. So around 86, now Ishmael comes onto the scene. According to what we have in front of us in Scripture, okay, Google, fact check, do whatever you want, but according to what Scripture says here, there seems to be 13 years that passes from the last time God spoke to Abraham until we come onto the scene in chapter 17 of verse 1. So there seems to be 13 years where there isn't any conversation or any appearance that God makes before Abraham until we get to 17. So uh, let's break the chapter down a little bit, okay? The first movement is really verses 1 through uh, 1 and 2. And the very first thing that God says to Abraham after seemingly a 13-year hiatus of no conversation, no appearance, is this. I am God Almighty. He says, I am God Almighty. Here in recorded scripture, this is the first time God introduces himself to someone with this title, El Shaddai, which means infinite power. No other time prior to this in Genesis and recorded scripture do we see God introducing himself with this title. That's interesting to me. That's really interesting. The very first thing he says to Abraham is, I am God Almighty. I am the God who has all power. And if we think again about the context we just talked about, 13 years previously, Abraham and Sarah were getting really antsy. And they thought maybe, maybe, and I'm wondering, okay, I'm not trying to infuse this into the text, but as a human thinks, I wonder if they were starting to consider that maybe God couldn't deliver on his promise. Maybe God isn't able to do what he said he was going to do. I mean, by that point, it had been 10 or 11 years since the initial covenant established. So it's interesting to me, the first thing God says to Abraham is, hang on, buddy. I am God Almighty. I am able to deliver on my promise. If God establishes a covenant, it's not on me to make sure he comes through. God established a covenant with Abraham and Sarah and said, it's on me to make sure I deliver on it. And it's interesting, uh, he says, walk before me. That was his command, walk before me, be blameless. The reason that I may make a covenant between me and you and the reward so that I can multiply you greatly. Now, the second movement is verse 3. How does Abraham respond? He falls on his face. Uh, everything that I read, every, every scholar that I looked up said this is equating to Abraham worshiping God. This is a reality check for Abraham. Almost like a, yeah, we tried to kind of do our own thing back in chapter 16. You are God Almighty. When God reveals himself, our only response is utter humiliation and worship. 
he fell to the ground on his face in a physical position, understanding his position before God, an almighty God. And really, this idea that God is almighty, it sets the tone for everything else in the chapter, that God is able to do what he said he's going to do. Verses 4 through 6 give us our next movement in the passage. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, Abraham. And he goes on to say, this is where the name change happens. You're no longer Abram, but now you're Abraham. Abram meaning high father, respected, reverent father to uh, Abraham, a multitude of nations. Wow. 24 years he's been waiting. Is this really going to happen? So God reiterates us. You are going to be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you many nations, and kings will come from your line. Then verses 7 through 9, God continues to reiterate the promise. It seems like he's saying the same thing over and over again. But if you notice verses 7 through 9, he includes one specific detail that he didn't include in verses 4 through 6, and that is the offspring. This promise will be, uh, this covenant is not only a covenant between God and Abraham, but a covenant between Abraham and his future offspring. The promise of the land of Canaan to the offspring, an everlasting possession for the offspring. And God will not only be God of Abraham, but it will be uh, the offspring uh, God as well. So God will be their God into the future, long gone after, after, or long days after Abraham has come and gone, God will still be faithful to the offspring. So then we get to verses 10 through 14. And this is the sign of the covenant. If you've studied much about uh, uh, Israel's history and into the New Testament, then you know at some point Israel took the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and started making it the covenant. And if you read anything in the New Testament, any letters by Paul, then you see Paul's constantly refuting this and correcting this teaching over and over again. Circumcision was not meant to equate to the covenant or earn salvation, or earn favor with God. It was a sign to point to an already established covenant. So I thought through this a lot this week, this particular portion of the chapter. Because, I mean, I mean really, it's, it's the heading, right? My heading says, Abraham and the covenant of circumcision. Seems like the whole thing's driving specifically to this concept, uh, circumcision. And I prayed a lot, and I'm like, Lord, help my tongue. Because I don't know what to say about this. There's a lot of things we could say about this. There's a lot of things I could say wrong about this. And so I thought through, I'm like, what did that conversation look like with God and Abraham? I mean, I want you to envision what that possibly have looked like. So God is going on and he's reaffirming, Abraham, dude, you're still my man. Like, I still have this covenant for you and new name and many nations and even your offspring. And fact, Abraham, I got a great idea. I want you to do something that nobody in your family has ever done before. In fact, you might not even be familiar with the idea or the word I'm going to use. I'm probably going to have to draw a picture for you. And Abraham had it. When he heard, you want me to do what to what? <laughs> he had to have been like, oh, wait a minute. Did I misunderstand what you're saying? 
dude, you better give me some really good reasons for why we're doing this. Because the boys back at the camp, they are not going to buy this. There is no chance. Like, you give me a rod that turns into a snake or something. Like, I need some other sign that this is from you. I can't imagine that conversation. I mean, it had to have been awkward, as awkward as it is for me now to talk to you about it now. Now, I could tell you, like, I read a lot of stuff, like, because some of you are like, dude, are you going to tell us why circumcision? Are you going to tell us? Like, nope, I'm not, I don't know. I don't get, I mean, there's a lot of, like, potential ideas of, of why and whatever. Um, but I'm not, I don't want to get into that, because to me, I, the, the point is not the why that. You, you could say there are some very specific biblical reasons for it, but there's a larger reason for why God is asking him to do something external is pointing to an already internal change. And if you look through this chapter, there's, there's really a theme that comes out of this. And it starts in verse 1. When God, the first thing God says to Abraham, he introduces himself by what? I am God Almighty. He further reveals his full identity, that he is the God of infinite power. Then later in the chapter, he goes on and he says, I am going to re-identify you, rebrand you. You're no longer Abram high father, you're Abraham, multitude of nations because of what's coming next. And we're not going to get into the rest of the chapter, but also verses 15 through the end of the chapter, he renames uh, Sarai to Sarah. And so as I was looking through this, I'm like, you know, this is really, this is about identity. God is reminding Abraham, who he is in God. And specifically, there's three things that I think of why God gave this physical act. One, to signify to them that they belong to God. They belong to God. Secondly, to be a reminder that they were to live, because they belong to God, they were to live as a separate people among all other nations. They were called out to live separately. And third, it was a reminder uh, to them that God was going to make good on his promise of the coming seed. You have to remember, not only is God going to bless Abraham with a multitude of nations into the future, there was one very important person that came from the seed of Abraham. Do you remember who that is? Jesus. God is going to bless the entire earth through the seed of Abraham, through the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So the question is, how is this relevant for you and I? In fact, as I was um, researching questions and looking at what different people wrote, like I stumbled across a number of like Christian like website chat boards where people are asking is circumcision something Christians should be doing today? Is that the direct application that we are to take from this? I'm going to tell you no. Okay? I'm going to tell you no. That's not the direct application because circumcision was an exterior symbol to point to an inward change, something that God had already established. Galatians tells us that Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness, his faith in God. It's always been about faith. And God is the originator and the establisher and the sustainer of the covenant. So what is the point for you and I? What do we take away for you and I? Well, just as 
uh, God has come to Abraham and established his covenant. Uh, God sent Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to establish a new covenant. Many of us are familiar with this. And Jesus has invited us to enter into that covenant. And when we enter into that covenant, we are made new in him. And whoever we were before, whatever we lived for before, has died. It's gone. We now have a new identity. Just as God gave the tribe, the family of Abraham, this sign of established a covenant to identify them with him, you and I find our identity in Christ. And so that's what I want to talk about for the next couple minutes. Four different realities that belong to you and I if we are made new in Christ. Uh, if you want to turn to the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at uh, a little bit in Ephesians there for a moment. If you have never studied or haven't looked much at Ephesians chapter 1, it's a fascinating chapter, verses 1 through 14. In there, there's a phrase used uh, eight different times, in him or in Christ. And if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, this should be very special to you. Because it reveals who you are. Uh, you don't have to read very many news stories or go very far on the internet to see how popular the idea of identity, identity has become. Okay? Uh, people choosing to identify as different genders. Uh, people living in a manner to try to find their identity in certain hobbies or certain achievements or certain careers or certain relationships. Working with students, the idea of identity and identification is something we talk about all the time. Because the stage of life that they are in, they are trying to find themselves. What's interesting is, I think all of us struggle with this idea of identity. Because we're constantly changing. We're constantly going through transitions in our life. We're growing up, we're getting older. The reality of getting older, man, that's a tough transition. Uh, the things that I maybe claimed of who I once was, I am no longer because I'm older. And there's just certain things I can't do. So I'm always working through, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And the answer is always the same. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. We know that. We know that. We believe that. The question is, do we live that way? Do we actively on a day-to-day -day basis live as if you live in him. So, four realities of what it means to live in him. Number one, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 4 and 5. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. Number one, if you're in Christ, you have a new identity, and that means you've been made alive. You've been made alive, which means if you've been made alive at one point, you were dead. Um, some of you know that I, I have done some trapping in the past. You guys know the sport of trapping, okay? And uh, when I first got into this, this hobby, uh, I wanted to learn how to do it as well as I could. And so if I couldn't catch an animal, well, I had to find an animal that I could learn how to do all the things that you do with trapping, skinning them and cleaning the hide and all those kind of things. And so I would drive down the road, no matter where I was going, whether I was taking the kids to school or I was on my way to work in outfits like this, 
and I would pick up roadkill. I'm not from Kent City. Hard to believe, I know. Uh, I didn't say I would eat them. That would be people from Grant, so I didn't do that. But, but I would pick up roadkill because I wanted to learn how to do this. And so, um, you know, one thing that's important to do is making sure the animal is dead when you go to pick it up. Fortunately, all of the ones I picked up were dead. But I, when I think about this concept of dead, that uh, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, before we were made alive, uh, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were dead. Do we understand the concept of dead? It means to be cut off from life. It means there's nothing there. I'd pick these animals up and I'm like, ew, this is gross, man. Like these things smell, but my kids were like, what is wrong with you? Like, dad, seriously, why are you doing this? I wanted to learn this hobby that was essential to do that. They had to be dead. I couldn't do it while they were alive. That's inhumane. <laughs> There's something about death that we're uncomfortable with, and we should be, because it wasn't intended for us. But clearly, this is how we are characterized before we were made alive. We are dead. Dead things don't offer anything. I mean, uh, you, can, you could take a, something dead and try to reanimate it and move it around and pretend like a weekend at Bernie's type of situation. It's still dead. It's dead. It can't respond to life. It can't accomplish anything that's productive. It stinks. It's rotting. It's deteriorating. It's dead. That's who we were before God made us alive. Some of us still act like we're dead. Some of us still kind of smell like we're dead. Because we're still playing in that wallowing mess of the dead life. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, if you've claimed him as yours, then you're no longer dead. You've been made alive. That's your new identity. That's who you are. You can't do both and. It's not one foot in death and one foot in life. It's either or. You've been called to live. What does this mean practically? If you've been made alive, then it means you're able, you and I are able to respond to truth. When the word of God is preached, when the word of God is spoken, when you spend time alone in the word of God, when a friend encourages you with the word of God, you can respond to it because you're alive. And the Holy Spirit infuses the truth of his word in your life so that your actions reflect what he has done internally. If you're alive, you and I should have an appetite for what is right. We shouldn't have an appetite for the things of death anymore. We should be different. Uh, with each of these points, I want to give you an action step, something very specific to think about as you walk away today of what you can do with this. So the action step here, if you're alive in Christ, is we have to be intentional about feeding the new man. We have to be intentional about feeding the new man, our new identity, doing the things that are going to continue to build us up in Christ and keep us separate from the world. Second reality of having the new identity, we should be living as one who's been adopted. Uh, look at it, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. 
Uh, it says, uh, he predestined, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Before adoption, we were an enemy. Ephesians 2, 4 says that we were enemies of God, we were objects of his wrath. We did not belong to him. Being adopted means I belong to him now. It means I'm accepted by him. Regardless of my insecurities, my flaws, my inadequacies, I am whole in him. I belong to him. I've been set apart for him. The action step for this is I'm not concerned about what anyone else thinks of me. I'm not concerned about seeking your approval. Even as I come here today to present God's word, the voices of, are people going to like my message? Are people going to think it's good? Are they going to approve of me? If I'm in him and I belong to him, it doesn't matter. I don't seek your approval. I don't seek anyone's approval except him because I belong to him. He's the only one that I care about in terms of what they think about me. Number three, uh, live as one who is free in Christ. Romans 6.18 says, I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm free uh, from sin and I've become a slave to righteousness. Really what this looks like is I have freedom in Christ. I can live a self-controlled life. I can actually, actually choose to do what is right. I don't have to succumb to sin and temptation. And not only that, but I can recognize truth from falsehood. I can see it coming a mile away. I know exactly what it looks like. Because God's spirit lives in me. Christ's blood and sacrifice and resurrection set me free from the penalty of sin. And now I have the ability to choose what is right. The action step here is, uh, found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When we're tempted, God gives us a way out. We have the ability to choose what is right and to live in what is right. And finally, the fourth reality of being in Christ, having a new identity in him, is that I live as one who's looking forward to the eternal reward of our, of our inheritance. As I was standing back there and I was listening to Pastor Luis uh, preach, via Paul um, and then watching that video and just seeing all of these people being fed and then him talking about how not only are they, they feeding them physically, they're feeding them with the word of God and people are hearing the name of Jesus and they're responding to the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Quite often, man, I don't think about that personally. And here's, here's the problem for me. I'm, I'm really earthbound. I don't, I don't know if you're earthbound, I'm really earthbound. And what I mean by that is, I really like my life. I really enjoy the stuff that I have. I enjoy my house. I enjoy my property. I enjoy my toys. I enjoy my family. I enjoy my friendships. Uh, I, I like to be comfortable. I like to know I have money in my bank account. I like earth. I get nervous of thinking about not being on earth sometimes. I get nervous of thinking about tragic situations that could happen to my family or loved ones close to me and think, man, Lord, how could I handle that? How could I process if that ever happened to me? Or if I was called to live in a difficult situation or go without, selfishly, I like earth. I'm really earthbound. I don't know if you can relate with that. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. 
in him, our new identity, in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the promise of his glory, through the promise of his glory in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm living for something more than this. And uh, even going through this this week, it's just a reminder uh, not to hold on to anything too tightly in this world. And I, if you'll do this with me for a moment, and if, if you would close your eyes, great. If, if you don't want to, that's fine. If you're not comfortable with that, you think someone's going to come back and hit you in the head, uh, don't close your eyes. But I want you to envision, try to envision what it would be like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ for five seconds. And we just read in Genesis 17, when God appeared before Abraham and he started to speak, the only response Abraham had was to fall to his face. The glory, the majesty, the perfection of being in the presence of Jesus. No more pain, no more sin, no more illness, no more financial stress, marital stress, uh, child-rearing stress, President Trump stress, whatever you want to put in there. It's all gone. Now come back to life. Come back here to earthbound life. Is there really anything in your possession, in terms of your aspirations and your achievements and what you want out of life, that would even come close to comparing to being in the presence of our brother, Jesus Christ, and our King, Jesus Christ. There's not. For me, man, I have to walk myself through that exercise often to remind myself there's something more than this. As much as the world is a beautiful place, there's wonderful things to enjoy that I believe we've been called to enjoy and take delight in, there's something better. There's something greater. God desires for me to know who I am and am in him and him alone. That I don't find delight in anything so much to the point where I want to trade that for the knowledge of him, the intimate relationship with him, and someday that eternal presence of being with him. That's what I'm living for. That's who I am in Christ. That's the point. God has given us an exclusive identity only found in the personhood of Jesus Christ. Our new identity is through Jesus and by his work, for Jesus and his glory alone, and with Jesus for all of eternity. Are you in him? Do you identify with him and him alone? That's why he's called you out. That's why he's established a new covenant, so that you will know him and you will live in freedom and walk in him.